So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. You know, are you a restaurant? No, he wasn't a restaurant, right? Are you a park? No, I'm not a park, right? So this is you know, this is the nature of being a startup when you're really, you know, chomping out in the virgin snow, right? So he he does this and he has a panic attack before it happens because he thinks maybe no one will come. Well, guess what? Everyone came. <laughs> and, 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 and serendipitous things happen. Like the trucks didn't want to all be there the same day. They didn't want to be there for the whole week, but that allowed variety. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Jonathan Littman. Jonathan, thanks for making time. Thanks, Jess. So as I was saying just before we started, I was excited when your your folks reached out to have you on the show because I love the books that you wrote with the folks over at IDEO and, and I've been looking forward to digging into this new book I've just started of yours. But besides being a super famous author, tell us about yourself. Well, I've had an unusual career. I guess I very early on, I was in tech and I wrote for lots of top uh, tech publications traveled around a lot. And then I had a breakthrough early book and started writing, did two hacker books, believe it or not, notorious, crazy hackers. And, you know, my new book, The Entrepreneur's Faces is about entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial thinking. I actually believe hackers are entrepreneurs really in a, in a very digital human sense. And so I had this early experience with two notorious hackers, Kevin Mitnick, Kevin Polson, that was the fugitive game and the Watchmen. And weirdly that serendipitously led me to work with IDEO, which you couldn't imagine any more different. So I was an expert on crime and, you know, computer criminals and social, you know, sort of this, this hacking that they do. And then I went to this really collaborative creative company, which is sort of out of the cradle of Stanford, and they really pioneered design thinking. And I spent six years on the art of innovation and the 10 phases of innovation. And it changed me because I was before this a pure author, a pure journalist, which is really a solo path. And we're very competitive and very egotistic. And I learned about collaboration from IDEO, which is all about teams. And that later informed me for, for our new book. But I've done a few other crazy things. I had several years. I was a contributing editor for Playboy. As I say, I did not write about sex at all. This was all about, about sports and kind of the edge of sports. So I was the world's expert on... Barry Bonds and steroids. I wrote about the 
crazy experience of the masters. I was an expert on ticket hustling, and I know you have a financial background. So this is like really economics 101 is hustling tickets for thousands of dollars at these different uh, venues, you know, Super Bowl, Masters, Final Four. And then fast forward to the you know last 10 years, I started teaching and I started teaching entrepreneurship. And my co-author, Susanna Camp and I started going to all these new crazy pitch nights and events here in San Francisco. And San Francisco was and is and will be a, a very international city. And so we saw people coming, you know, from um, Europe, from Asia, uh, from Latin America. And it was all about more entrepreneurial thinking, doing, creating teams, obviously creating startups. We started writing about this. And eventually we decided, gosh, you know, this is going to be a book. That's exciting. So I, I read Kevin Mitnick's book on social engineering and I, I've had a number of clients, our, our consulting firm, we've got a number of clients from the Department of Defense and some, some folks in the intelligence community. And so I, you know, I'm not going to teach them how to be a better spy from regular spy stuff. So, you know, the leadership classes we teach them and stuff, it also strays into some things they can use. And so we're teaching them like sales techniques and, and you know, taking things from different worlds. And, and man, the rapport building and the social engineering techniques are something that I think so many people don't understand about those guys. It's not all ones and zeros, you know? Well, you got to read my book because it came before Kevin's. It's the fugitive game. And I was, the I'm going guy to. Who, I was the guy who was talking to him while he was a fugitive and they were hunting him. And we had to go through sort of like spy craft for, you know, me to get these calls and, I spent years doing this and it really did, you know, help me moving forward with some of this new work around entrepreneurs. And, and Kevin actually has been very entrepreneurial since he spent five years at an institution of higher learning, a federal uh, penitentiary. <laughs> yeah. I've seen him give talks for, you know, he usually charges between 15 and $20,000 for, you know, 45 minutes. So not bad work if you can get it. Wow. Well, and haven't some of your books been optioned for movies? Yes. Between books and, and some of these Playboy stories, I've had five different projects. The, the hacker books, I even wrote, you know, I have daughters and I wanted to do something a little different. So I wrote two books about women's soccer, which was optioned as well. But the, definitely the hacker books, also my Barry Bonds crazy stuff was optioned. I have had success in the movie industry. It's actually a hacking story. Another author who shall remain unnamed stole material from my Kevin Mitnick book we were just discussing. And it happened to be a little company owned by Harvey Weinstein. You may have heard of this guy. And so we brought suit and I'm happy to say we won quite a bit of money. I'm not allowed to say how much. And I learned of the theft through my hacker network and we sort of hacked them and got the goods on their theft. So it was a security hacking story. Wow. Well, that's, you definitely get the drama. No wonder Hollywood wants to hear about it. So, <laughs> and, and where did you grow up? I grew up near San Francisco. I went to uh, 
Cal Berkeley. I was a, a rhetoric major, which is quite unusual. There's only two universities in the U.S. It's the art of persuasion and, you know, and the art of, of writing and speaking. And, uh, you know, early on, I just was writing for, you know, places like back in the day, PC Week and PC World. And yeah. so tech was, was quite big. I even used to know how to code at one time, right? So I'm a local guy, but, you know, this work we've done with a new book with the Entrepreneur's Faces, we've traveled a ton. So I think of myself much more as a international person now. We collaborate a lot with people in Portugal, actually, and also sometimes in Asia. And I think the pandemic has made that it's much more obvious that that's a fruitful path, you know, if you're so inclined. So we're here, but we're also other places. Yeah. You know, that's a unique major. I only know of one other person. Uh, it's a friend of mine who we've had on the show. He was a copywriter for Whole Foods, Chad Lott. He got his rhetoric degree at Berkeley and he's writing for tech companies and stuff nowadays. So I'm interested when you think about what you've accomplished that not all folks from your background have accomplished, what do you think you've done differently? It's a great question. I had a professor of rhetoric who told me that it's impossible to make a living uh, writing and, you know, only like 20 American authors, novelists make a living, you know, and, and, and since people tell you things are impossible by creating little boxes for you. And of course, you know, thousands of people can make a living writing. In fact, millions of people, at least back when I was in the day when they used to pay for writing. And so part of it was, was learning uh, very specific knowledge. So I became an expert, you know, not so much in tech, but in the world of tech and in and, and the people and the companies. And I learned a lot about business, even though I never studied business. I, I think the biggest thing I've learned and I'm still learning is that we often create these little sort of professional boxes for ourselves sometimes because there's sort of ego and allure attached to them. For instance, I was, you know, I published my first major book with, you know, Simon and Schuster when I was 27 and I've now published 10 books, but some people would think, you know, why would you want to do anything else but publish books? Because, you know, there's so many famous people that publish books and I can give you one big reason, you know, you want to collaborate with other people, you know, you want to, connect on this human level. It's not always ideal to walk out to your little cabin in the back of your suburban home and barricade yourself for eight hours. That, that doesn't strike me as maybe a perfect life. So one of the things I think I did learn over time was that I discovered later in life that I loved teaching, you know, actually business, teaching entrepreneurism. And, and it was first with international students that I loved speaking, but I actually loved more doing essentially innovation workshops because I think it's more real because, you know, you can spend a day or three days with a group and really create change. I discovered that I love to collaborate with other people and that there's just sort of this magic that can happen when you share ideas. And it's just so happens that venture capitalists agree with this too, and they believe you always have to have a co-founder, right? And this is not something that people necessarily believed 20 years ago, right? So I also have discovered that a lot of people will tell you you can't do things. 
and most of the times <laughs> they're wrong <laughs> and they're speaking from their own failure or their own lack of you know ambition and uh vision i think that today we're in this age when it's just so critical to find something new to master so i'm now attempting to master portuguese uh, because i love portugal and because it's a difficult language so i i, I think there's uh, a sort of a beauty in finding something new to dive into yeah it's interesting just that last week we had a guy who is he's an intelligence officer in the army attached to the special forces units and he talked about language acquisition and some of the work that he'd done there and really not just getting it in the first place, but keeping it. And he, they developed, he developed this program kind of based on CrossFit for languages of, of doing just enough high intensity at the right time to prevent the forgetting curve, you know, so for retention. And it was interesting, the, the, the advantages as he talked about influence and things that can happen when you're when you're making the when you're making the struggle to speak someone's language so they don't have to try to make the struggle to speak yours the, the like kind of the brownie points you get for that and I, I i'll share a quick quick thought you know in our new book we have archetypes and i my strongest archetype is what we call the athlete and the athlete is you might guess very competitive and loves crazy challenges and actually likes to invent training like CrossFit. So I have my own CrossFit for language learning. And my biggest breakthrough is discovering that there's a really good telenovela, which is a soap opera in Portuguese. Uh, episodes. It has 300 episodes, right? And it has tem legendas no português. It has the, the, the words, you know, the subtitles in Portuguese and it's spoken. So what I do is I, wa I watch... So I see the words, I hear the words, and then and then a lot of the times, you know, it's a it's a it's a telling novella. So sometimes it's about love. More often it's about breakups, right? But a lot of the times they're really practical phrases of people just speaking to each other. So I write them down by hand, right? And then I eventually type them in, and then I practice them with this wonderful professor I have, minha professora no Portugal. So I, I take an hour long, you know, aulas lessons in Portuguese with a lady who's, you know, 9,300 kilometers away, right? And I'm learning really fast. And this is a completely non-traditional way to learn the language. I don't really study Portuguese. I'm immersing in it. And I can't be walking around Portugal right now, but I sort of am because I'm walking around this silly soap opera, which has, you know, like years of episodes. <laughs> so I, I'm a real, you know, one of the things as a writer, I, I, for me in this, this athlete sense, I love finding something new that I'm passionate about it and, and diving into, you know, trying this new method. You know, it's interesting how many stories I've heard of people learning English by watching American TV. So it's, it's fun to hear it in reverse. So I think my next question is thinking about collaboration, thinking about startups, thinking about entrepreneurs. For, for folks who are more of the visionary types, living in the future, the grand big views, annoying their co-founders and friends who want to talk about what's happening in the next 10 minutes, right? Any, any thoughts for, for collaborating when... You know, it's great to cover different parts of the spectrum, but sometimes, sometimes that lack of over, overlap can cause a lot of friction. 
Well, is it okay if I just mention a couple of our types in in the book? Yeah, so, yeah, please. Yeah, one of the things is Suzanne and I we sort of figured out was that there's not one archetype or type of entrepreneur that there clearly is a couple well-known ones. One is called, we call the maker. This is the person who's the crazy, you know, prototyper and they may, you know, bang out the code or this, this website or this, this new tech product. But there are many other types. We have a type, we sort of danced around so far, which we call the outsider. And, and the outsider is really the person who comes sort of fresh to a world and they're enthusiastic with their sort of naivete. They're, you know, let's say beginner's mind. This is the story of Airbnb, Uber, many other hot companies where they were the anti-expert, right? But we have other types like the conductor. The conductor is someone who builds a platform. This is, you know, Salesforce. And so one of the things that we think helps people is when they start to look at the reality that other people, as you mentioned, not everyone wants to be a visionary. We have one type that's a visionary. It's just one of the 10, right? That if you if you start to discover what your type is, and you may be a hybrid. So I'm actually an athlete, you know, major and a minor in the outsider type, but I'm not, I'm not a visionary, you know, and I'm not a conductor, right? And so you when you learn more about who you are, you can also learn more about who you are not. And that's where, you know, I think you have an interest in design thinking and so forth. That's where the empathy part of hopefully we have a bit of a more human centric approach here comes in where you start to realize, oh, you know, just he's a visionary. This, this is this is how he's wired. This is, you know, this is what thrills him. Whereas this other person on the team, let's say Sarah, she's the maker. What she wants to do is, okay, you're having these crazy thoughts about the future. Let's prototype something like this week, right? And then you have another character, which I think is kind of the glue of the team. We call the collaborator. Now it sounds like kind of obvious, but there are people who just live for collaboration, right? And it's just such an essential part of a team. And today, when we're so isolated, you know, and we, we don't have the easy serendipity of human interaction that, you know, geniuses like Jobs and, and actually, you know, the folks at IDEO thought about creating human serendipity and spontaneous combustion. Like, how do you do that? Well, you know, the collaborator thinks a lot about how to do that. So I think that we believe that, that when you have this greater awareness, you start to go, oh, I'll bet Mike is more uh, of a conductor. And so we can talk to him and, and I'll bet he has better ideas at how to network this about, you know, what's the platform possibility for this. And so you, you start to understand kind of how people talk and how they, how they approach problems. Can you talk a little bit more about the conductor? So we have a great conductor actually in the story. It, it's, a, it's a very physical example. So it's easy to understand, I, I hope. Carlos Muela. And he's the son of a Madriano, you know, from, from, from Madrid. His father has two tapas restaurants. You know, he's going to become the owner of a tapas restaurant, except he goes to University of San Francisco, where I happen to teach, and he takes both hospitality and entrepreneurship classes. And so about 10 years ago, he starts seeing the rise of this thing called the food truck. 
And there's a problem with the food truck because it's actually illegal most of the places for the food truck to park and to sell food. So food truck owners actually often struggle. And th there was somebody in San Francisco who had a place for special fairs and you know special pop-up things you know on 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 a private property but there wasn't that much and so he started brainstorming actually with his father with others and he found an empty lot so imagine he found a lot that was actually filled with homeless people drug addicts rats that no one really wanted so he got a bargain deal it was it's next to you know a freeway ramp in San Francisco and he created a park a food truck park a fixed place and no one thought this was possible. In fact, he was only 22 when he was starting this. And almost all the bureaucrats, you know, because it's a physical thing, he had to go before the, you know, the fire department, electrical, you know, bubble. They all said, what are you? You know, are you a restaurant? No, he wasn't a restaurant, right? Are you a park? No, I'm not a park, right? So this is, you know, this is the nature of being a startup when you're really, you know, chomping out in the virgin snow, right? So he... He does this and he has a panic attack before it happens because he thinks maybe no one will come. Well, guess what? Everyone came. <laughs> and, 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 and serendipitous things happen. Like the trucks didn't want to all be there the same day. They didn't want to be there for the whole week, but that allowed variety and he used social media to tease up the variety of every day because there were different trucks every day. So now he has two huge food truck parks and he found an entirely new business model. In fact, he found like seven business models. And my favorite is he's a food truck broker. So he's the agent for 300 food trucks and he collects a fee when he sends them to Airbnb's offices or Google's offices or a mega church or what have you. So he was in a world where you're a sole proprietor, you have a fixed restaurant, it's a traditional business. And he, you know, had the, the vision in this conductor's mindset to realize, you know, the problem with the restaurant is the restaurant, <laughs> is the employees, you know, is owning that building, right? And, and, and so now he has this much larger platform. And I, and I think that kind of thinking obviously applies to tech. There, there are obviously lots of people have built, you know, different platforms in tech. And so you, a conductor is thinking about how to, uh, all boats rise, you know, and, and they're very good at thinking of the smaller needs of, of these many partners they need for, you know, the orchestra to sing. Yeah. So, and contrast that, tell us the way that you guys define visionary, because we, we touched on it for just a second, but. Sure. You know, a, a visionary is, uh, is someone who is seeing things that are going to happen, and it depends on the speed of the industry, right? You're seeing things that are going to happen in months, you know, a couple of years, many years, and they're actually, you know, running toward that future. Our, the character we actually have in our book is a fascinating guy. He's Finnish. One of the cool things in our book, we have three people in our book from either Estonia or Finland, which is, as you probably know, like an incredibly successful, you know, tech region of the world. Between Does Skype come from Estonia? Skype is, well, actually, one of the co-founders of Skype is Jan Tallinn, right? 
but there are, there are multiple founders, but yes. And Jan Talon is actually funded one of the companies in our, in our, in our story, but there are Estonians are happen to be brilliant physicists a, a lot of the time. <laughs> they end up being pretty good in tech a, a, as well. But, but in terms of the visionary, this character was someone who was a designer who saw really early on that he should focus in a hyper way on what was coming, which was going to be the iPhone, right? And which was going to be that, you know, you know, laptops, you know, websites, sort of, but the future was going to be this tiny thing. And Risto Ladomowski is, is this guy's name. And he also had a visionary sense of where he should be. This goes to another element of our book is we think entrepreneurs go through stages and that you have an awakening, which is great, but you could go back to sleep and you should have a shift and then you should have a place. So we believe that, you know, finding your place, which can be physical and virtual is key for your growth. So he is a visionary, knew he could only be so big in Finland, which is 5 million people, right? And he was here a few times and he had a visceral belief that actually a place we've kind of been talking about, like IDEO, like Stanford, University Avenue, which is right by, you know, the university, that that will be his place. So he actually pretended and lied and said he was living there because he'd never get clients. If he wasn't living there, he would just be a visiting, you know, European. And he made this his place and he started to get business and he had vision about what kind of companies he decided to do very cheap work for startups. And then they got recommended by tons of VCs and like a, a job he did for $20,000 turned into 6 million of you know referrals. So a, we think visionaries think on multiple planes. So in his case, he thought in a visionary way about his technology in, and, and what his company should be. He thought in a visionary way about his where he should be, which was where the best clients were and what were the best clients at the early time. And actually, interestingly, he thought, you know, you're a leadership guy. He thought in a visionary way about how he would lead. And he had a lot of insights about, you know, how you would scale something creative, which generally doesn't work. You know, generally the creativity is as you scale up dies. And he's done some amazing things in that realm as way. So, Frankly, I would love to be more visionary today at this moment myself, because I think we're in a, in a time where being visionary is going to be so essential in the next six months to two years. Well, this is my question for you. You know, so often as I'm thinking about kind of how I imagine that archetype, I'm thinking visionaries, they, they get a lot of guff because they're not good at things that other people are good at, Right. And there's a lot of like, well, can't you learn how to do this too? And can't you learn how to be on time? And can't, you know, like, why do you have to be such a mess? And, you know, why are you always trying to put 50 pounds, you know, hundred pounds of stuff in a 50 pound bag and, you know, right. But going the other direction, like you talked about your, your sports writing and stuff, thinking about how visionaries could double down on being a visionary rather than like, you know, what if they could like recruit co-founders and, and employees for the weaknesses and double down on visionariness? What do you think that could look like? Well, I completely agree. We, we actually, you know, we have 10 types, but we think of them as sort of three main boxes. The, the one is are actually leaders. 
which we think of like sort of their, their navigators. And the, the, there are three main, we, there's one we call a visionary, there's one we call just a traditional leader, and there's one we call a guardian, which tends to be more mission and purpose oriented. So these are the people who are sort of charting the grand path. But we also think, and this is super essential for a, for a visionary or, or another leader, is that you, you need people who are sort of prototyping the ideas. And those are, we talked about the outsider who's looking at a different kind of industry. We also have a type we call the accidental. The accidental is Craig Newmark. You know, Craigslist, this was just a game. It was just a hobby. He was a lonely geek who had nothing better to do than create a little list of little events that he wasn't really going to, right? And it turned into this huge thing. But Google and many other companies decided to let people indulge their accidental, right? Back in the day, there was the 20% rule or the 10% or, you know, whatever, where you could just follow your crazy passion. Because guess what? Often it turned into like Gmail and other sorts of things, right? So, so, you know, we want those people early on, but we, the biggest thing as you're growing is you need, frankly, you know, Susanna is a maker, right? And there's essentially no company worth a damn that can't, that will thrive without makers, without, you know, talented makers who are, and this is something we get into later, but I learned at Stanford Launchpad, which is part of the book, that you can prototype all kinds of things. You can prototype how you target customers. You could prototype, you know, an offering to customers. And you can prototype this far before you have a product, right? And you can do it in, in, a, in a fairly creative and systematic way. But you have to have that maker mindset too. This is the antithesis of the MBA creating, you know, a business plan, right? And then you need, I think, my type, which is the person who you give them a task on Monday, and then you give them a totally different task on Tuesday and, and on Wednesday, and they love it. And they love it that the deadline is, you know, is two in the morning, right? So, so to us, what we think is there's this awareness, and, and you see failing companies who, who don't really have makers, right? And, and, and they, they came up with something that seemed interesting. They got a lot of funding, but they failed to keep prototyping because virtually all companies have to you know, pivot multiple times before they find a really key offering. So we, we think it's in the mix of things and it really depends on the type of company. And as far as visionaries getting more visionary or doubling down on their strength, do you have any thoughts on that? We think it's great to study. And it's one thing we're doing, we're compiling different people and there's different kinds of visionaries. I think, I think one of our basics of our book is, in, you know, in the entrepreneur's faces, we think you'll find 10 remarkable people who are successful, but they're not mega successful. In other words, th this is not a story of Steve Jobs and, you know, other, you know, Jeff Bezos. Who are Jeff Bezos. Who are These are people and many of them, you know, in terms of monetary success are quite successful. They're successful in terms of, you know, getting funding, of creating a business. But you might imagine that you could be these people. And, and we think one of the mistakes, actually multiple in business school, you know, having taught business school, is that we study, you know, multi-billion dollar companies and, and legends. Instead of really studying, you know, 
peers or almost peers, right? So I think the biggest thing I would say is, you know, for instance, there's a guy we're going to write about a story about now who is in San Francisco who remade his bakery, which was dead in the water. And he went from a dead bakery business to the hottest online, you know, sort of home baking thing in three weeks, right? Now, this guy is definitely <laughs> a guy who's has some, some real talents, but we don't tend to focus on the sort of average amazing people. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, this idea of specializing and it, and you talked about focusing, when you think about your success, both as a journalist and an author, there's so many people that wish they'd written a book. There's so many people who wish their book had been successful that, you know, and, and when you think about what you've done, that's different there, both as a journalist and as an author, what, what would you say? You know, I think there are multiple paths. I think that I am stimulated in this is my athlete sense by learning new things. It's like new sports, you know, new, new things. There are some people who are very happy and God bless them who find, you know, a great style for a novel and they write, you know, 10 more of those novel or 30 they, more. Right. <laughs> right. And they may be very successful that that just didn't happen to be me. I, I think that it, it is key I think to find new things that that you're learning and immersing yourselves in. I think that when I look back, I realize, my God, I've done ten major books. It's kind of ten startups, but because you know you're often having to get venture funding, right, from Random House and Little Brown, and it's actually venture funding. They give you money before you've done anything, right? Now this doesn't happen so easily anymore, but. I've only realized this in retrospect. And I, I think one of the things I was doing naturally was I was becoming an expert in a new field. So I sort of became an expert in computer hackers. And then I became an expert in innovation. And when and, you say expert, how do you define that word? That's a good question. I think I... As a journalist, one of the things I was lucky to have, you know, great publications and great editors is I learned to know who to call because I think you can become an expert quite quickly if you're engaging and, and, and you're, you know, you, there's a reason why people might talk to you and share their knowledge. And as a journalist, you know, you, you have some cachet because you may be able to put them in the story. And I learned really quickly when someone wasn't a good source and, and I had, I developed a good horse sense around that. And I know when someone has knowledge or, or don't and whether, whether they have storytelling capabilities, if, if there's a narrative element. So I think you, to me, becoming an expert is becoming active. I don't think it's in my view, it's all passive. I think it's great. I should read more books. And I think it's great to read books and listen to amazing. But I think I believe in sort of active acquisition of expertise, which to me is engaging in a more direct level with the people inside. You know, it is interesting how school or traditional school system is very often so passive. And yet the learning by doing is such an accelerator, isn't it? Yeah. And I go back to, you know, in our book, we have this wonderful, like about, you know, 20% of our book is set at Stanford in, in the D school, which you're, you're very familiar with, 
which is this famous Stanford design school. It was really pioneered by David Kelly of IDEO. And people talk about design thinking all over the world. And this is actually one of the first sort of design thinking inspired accelerators. So it's a class. And, and this is sort of the antithesis of what you were talking about of a traditional passive university. It's just a 10 week class. They just meet for 20 times, you know, in, in April and May, basically, in the first weeks of June. And yet in 10 years, a half a billion dollars of value came out of just these college kids. And that given, given that, you know, many of them don't really have good ideas, right? But some of them do. But the reason it worked is because this fellow Perry Clavin and a few other people created this compression, right? Which, which is another thing I really believe in. And I think maybe this goes to leadership. I think there's a value, and this goes to my athlete, in thinking of compression, of thinking of a season, of thinking of intensity and, you know, hopefully a championship or what comes out of it is, you know, a product or a company. So they had uber compression. So you actually had to like show your product to the world, which is to Stanford, it's a pretty good place to show your product, right? They had to have an open house, not at the end of the class with a pitch, which is what all the boring passive traditional programs. Halfway through, you had to actually have an open house. Why? Because you wanted to be looking for investors, because you wanted to be learning to sell, right? So they actually accelerated the acceleration process itself. And and we're actually, you know, sort of raising the temperature and the RPM of these, you know, 21 to 23 year olds. And I got to see it, right? And, and it works, but it requires, you know, a real master like this fellow Perry Clavin and a real, and, and a real understanding of the maker mindset. And, and I think the athlete and a lot of it was the collaborator as well, because these are all teams and no one's success. There was not a single success in the 10 years of a sole founder. It was always a team. Wow, that's interesting insight. You know, I think my next question is, you talk about the D-School and Tom Kelly, David Kelly, and these, these great people since then. I'm interested with your experience with IDEO and with those guys personally helping write books and things like this. What do you think is some of the magic that maybe somebody like me, you know, I, I took a short IDEO class at their offices in New York, then I went out and took, you know, some Stanford programs and got to go through the D school. And, you know, I read, I think, I think all of the books, you know, call it 90% of the books that have been produced there. And I buy their playing cards and like, I'm, I'm a fan. Okay. But I don't, I haven't had any one-on-one -on -one time with Tom Kelly or David Kelly. So what do you think is some of the magic that outside observers like us may not grasp that being there and being immersed is, is kind of specialness about them? Well, I go back to, you know, I started doing this many years ago. The first was the art of innovation. And it was it was kind of like, you know, it was kind of like going to, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, except it was innovation. And we've, I've had, I had good experiences. You know, I went to UC Berkeley, I had good experiences at university. But this is almost like what I wish college might have been, right? It was actually by a college, by Stanford, and they had ownership of each studio. So there were probably at that time like six to eight studios, which each had their own 
actually in most cases building because there were just smaller buildings along the street off of University Avenue. And they each had their own culture. I, I'm immersed right now with helping a, a company in Portugal think about culture and how it's gonna change with, with remote work and distributed work. But you walk into these and the culture was just jumping out at you. Number one, they would show off all the cool things they'd done, right? And people would be playing with new things, right? We talked about one, you know, one of my heroes of IDEO is Dennis Boyle. So Dennis Boyle, I think he was, you know, one of the first three or four people at IDEO. And he's the, you know, character in our new book, he's the maker. So he's an inveterate prototyper. So his space, forget about a clean desk, right? He had prototypes all over the place, boxes of stuff. In fact, he started collecting weird materials and weird shapes. Sometimes, you know, things that would change under temperature or, 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 or you know, all sorts of different things. And he created this, this magic box, essentially. So when you had a brainstorm, you would go to Dennis's box and you'd pick these things up because your mind could start to understand that you know you could break out that you could you could change things you didn't think you could change so guess what happens when you have a real culture people started seeing that so they started actually mimicking that box at other ido offices and sort of transforming the setting of a brainstorm so along with you know maybe pizza or candy and millions of post-its and, and, and marker pens of there were all these weird, you know, quirky things that got you thinking. And, and I think currently right now, my thinking is like, I'm trying to come up with ways to do that virtually, right? And trying to do it digitally, because I think we are starving and we have lost our way a little bit because we've lost many of those things that used to be in the physical culture. Interesting. What about anything about David or Tom that maybe outsiders wouldn't know? Or, or wouldn't have like felt to the depth you have by actually spending so much time with him? Uh, David, you know, so David Kelly, he was such a generous founder. And, you know, he, he really created this studio system where there were, there were several leaders at the company. And I, I got the chance to, you know, interview him probably more than anyone else. I interviewed him many, many times. And he had, I uh, forget the model, but you probably know, like the most famous, most beautiful Italian uh, motorcycle in his, you know, second floor office, right? And he had lots of huge things like that, that were just sort of beautiful design, you know, beautiful engineering. I mean, he went to Carnegie Mellon. He, he was a very smart guy. He loved physical things. So his, his office you know, was filled with inspirations from brilliant engineers. And he, I never saw him angry. You know, I, I never saw him, you know, never really heard stories about, you know, the sort of stuff you hear with other leaders in Silicon Valley. So he's one of these rare cases that I think led by sort of sharing this love of creation and, and especially, you know, creation through collaboration. Interesting. And, and how did that contrast with Tom? 
Well, Tom was not originally a designer. And, you know, the interesting thing is that David, brilliant, you know, visual thinker, he was not a writer, right? You can't, you can't be everything. And, and, and Tom had worked as a consultant, was, was doing management. And I mean, the reality is that what happened was IDEO was asked by Nightline to design an iconic product in real time, which is kind of like, you know, the instant startup in a week, right? And so Nightline, which was quite big at that time, said, do it. And they chose a shopping cart. Okay, I've seen this. So in one week, they designed this incredible, you know, beautiful, fantastic shopping cart. And it was either the number one or number two most watched Nightline ever. And then what happens But a New York agent says there has to be a book. <laughs> and, and David wasn't interested in doing a book and, 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 and Tom was, and I had, there were many people interviewed and I happened to, you know, win. And I, I think what Tom understood very well, and I give him a lot of credit for this, is that there were lots of design companies at that time, but they were designers and they weren't word people. And so what we were able to do together with the first book, you know, Art of Innovation, and then the second, 10 Faces, is we started to codify this. We started to sort of collect the case studies, right? And, and in the second book, we started to have a sort of a model of how things worked at IDEO. And I, you know, I, I am proud that I think it's one of the reasons that IDEO rose above several other design firms at the time because they didn't have that vision. So I think Tom did have that vision and that understanding of that you had to go out of this less traditional area for a design firm, which is, you know, words and stories and, and you know, business models. And I think that made a big difference. Right. You know, it is interesting as you say that, I think about how many like groups that we think of as iconic now, they didn't just do good work and hope people found out about it. They like took, they kind of like took the bull by the horns and they wrote books or they were did right. interviews or they were made documentaries oh. or they, they, you know what I mean? Like they, they considered, it seems like they consider part of their work, the evangelizing of it, not just doing well, the work. I have to say in the new book, the evangelist, this is one of our 10 archetypes. And we thought a lot about this and, and we have some wonderful examples in the book. And we think that actually now, even more, if you're, a, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a startup founder, you know, if you're creating a new platform, it's a core element. And there, it is another archetype. And you know, some people are, are great at it. And some people hate it, right? And shy away from it. And I think actually with the disruption of traditional media, right? And the rise of obviously social media, and this little, you know, internet thing, these little phones, you have to have a level of professional media, really, which is really understanding this evangelist ability. You either have to have someone on your team or you have to consult with it. Yeah. Well, maybe I know we're kind of winding down here. What's a question that I didn't ask? A question that she didn't ask. Any news? How about a new area I'm looking at? Yeah. So... I started to just start to talk about this, but I'm super passionate right now about culture because I think we've abruptly had this, 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 this decision that, okay, a lot of companies are going remote, they're going distributed, but how do you build culture 
if everything is distributed? And how do you build interactions? And how do you build collaboration? And how do you get some of the same serendipity that all the, all the great, you know, hot companies really of the last 30, 40 years had or have? And, and so I'm actually engaged right now with a, a company in Portugal looking at this. And I'm very excited about this potential for sort of new ways that teams and new ways that companies can start to build their own culture in what is essentially a new world. Because I believe that, you know, some part of your day will always be in this new remote digital land, no matter, you know, no matter what happens in terms of vaccines. And that in terms of the visionary sense, the person who's smarter, I believe, and moves faster on this new road of developing these capabilities and this, this new you know, remote culture, the talent is going to come to you because I think we're going to want this stimulation. I think the sort of flat, you know, you're on your own in your suburban house and you just check into routine, boring Zooms and so forth is not going to cut it. So I think there's going to be a real race to developing this, this new sort of competitive culture fiber. And that's something I'm passionate about. Yeah, I, I think you're onto something there. Well, listen, besides people hopping online and buying their own copy of The Entrepreneur's Faces, where can they connect with you or follow you or what's what's the best places? Oh, well, I will say one other thing. We're we're starting to write for lots of, we're writing for Startup Nation. We may be writing for Inc. And, and other places as well. We're actually looking for great stories. So please reach out. If you think you might have a great story, who knows about you or another company, you can find us on LinkedIn. You can find us at theentrepreneursfaces.com. I think you might enjoy our book, our maker, uh, Susanna created it very cool quiz. So if you go to the entrepreneursfaces.com, you can get a sense of who you might be in about five minutes. <laughs> so That's great. I love it. Well, thanks for making time for this. This has been fun. Thanks, Jess. I enjoyed it. Jess. Bye, everyone.